When I was a teenager, uh, my family and I began to attend a church like this for the very first time in our lives. Um, I grew up uh, going to Mass, and so this church that we went to uh, seemed quite, quite a bit different to uh, Mass on a Sunday. I'd never been to a church like that, what I would just call um, probably an evangelical church. It was a lot smaller than this church, just a, just a handful of people, maybe uh, 40, 50 people or something like that. And uh, it was very, very different to us. And in all honesty, I actually didn't know, and I don't think any of my family did, I didn't know anything at all about denominations. I, I, I couldn't have told you really much at all. Like, you know the way that you, there's Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists and uh, Presbyterians and all these different kinds of denominations. I wouldn't have had a clue about what any of that meant, what they stood for, what the difference between one or the other was. I just wouldn't have known. I just had never had that experience. Um, very honestly, really wouldn't have known really much about the Bible, wouldn't know, have known much about theology, uh, certainly would not have known much about going into a church like that and like just its little ways that were all very unfamiliar to me. So sometimes church has a way of uh, talking and a way of dressing and a mode of operation that if you've been going there for years, you probably don't even think about it. But when you walk in for the first time, you're like, I don't know what to make of that. That just all seems a little foreign to me. And that certainly was the case. The church that we went to was kind of traditional, and it also had a few little quirks. And so I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but it was new to me. Um, all the women in the church had to wear head coverings. I, I, I didn't know what that was about. So you had all these women there, and they had scarves on their heads. And I thought that was strange. I, I didn't know what it meant. Why would people do that? Uh, they had an electric organ in the corner, and they started doing um, their songs and their worship. And they had a very formal way of dressing. Uh, everybody wore uh, suits, and all the ladies were wearing dresses. And it's not to say that anything of, the, of that was right or wrong, but for me, it was all new. It was all different. I'd never had that before. But then the wonderful thing happened is I'm standing there, looking at all this kind of newness, and the worship started. And the presence of God and the anointing of God filled that place. And then there was this fellow that got up, kind of like exactly like I'm doing right now, and he opened up the Bible. It was a missionary work from Wales into Ireland. So the fellow that got up to preach was Welsh. And uh, I'd never heard anybody ever preach from the Bible. I just had never, not like that. And it was dynamic, and it was powerful. It was like he grabbed me by the throat and shook me around for half an hour, and I went, wow, I've just never heard anything like that before. Years pass by, and what happened to myself and even my family uh, is we just became engrossed in the life of the church, and we just loved the church, and we began to get to know everybody in the church, and we began to learn about God, and we began to give, and we began to serve, and we began to help out. And over that time, my dad, um, who had another job, right, he, he had his own job and a mortgage and all the normal stuff that everyone has, he began to really take on a leadership role in the church. Again, just a small church, and I think that, the, to coin the phrase for it, he would be known as sort of a lay leader, sort of a volunteer leader, and he began to sort of shepherd and preach a little bit and bring some significant leadership into the church, uh, and, and that was great. Over the course of more time, what we discovered was we were not the only evangelical church in Dublin. And there was just a very small number of other churches 
kind of like the church that we started to go to, that were around the city center of Dublin. And my dad, who was now kind of <clears throat> doing some spiritual leadership in the local church and preaching a little bit, he reached out to some of these kind of pastors in different churches. And again, really small little churches, really small. And he began to get to know them. And I'm bragging now, and I'm totally biased because my dad was just such a great guy, but he became like oil in relationship with these other men from other churches. And they began to meet every now and again. And my dad just had a way about him that was very, he was just a very caring person, an extremely shepherding pastoral man. And if you spent five minutes with him, <clears throat> he just felt like a million books. And uh, he was sitting down with these leaders from other churches and getting to know them and caring for them and loving them and praying together and laughing together. He had a great sense of humor. And they just built that relationship until one day they said, what would it look like <clears throat> if we got these churches from different denominations and we just got together and we worshiped Jesus? And they all said, yeah, let's do that. And I'll never forget it because it was the largest Christian meeting that I'd ever gone to. There were hundreds and hundreds of people. And there's a cathedral in, uh, on Pier Street in the city center of Dublin. Uh, there's a cathedral there called St. Mark's Cathedral. And it's probably a, a much larger building. And it's very long like a cathedral. And it has a long balcony on the back of it. So you've got all the seats on the floor. And you've got a huge balcony. And I remember going there. And it was packed. There was no room in this cathedral. And these probably four, five, six churches were all there. And kind of everyone came at once. And it was amazing. And I was up on the balcony. I remember looking down all the people going, wow. This is fairly exciting. I've never been to anything like this before. The pastors were all going to say like a 60-second thing, each of them. They were all going to get up and say, you know, my name is such and such. I come from this church, and we're really happy to be here. That's all it was, and we're going to worship Jesus. And so a few of those guys got up, and they did that. And then it was my dad's turn. And he got up, and this is what he said. Um, <clears throat> he said, my name is Brian Cullen. That's my dad's name. And I'm from such and such a church. And then he paused. And he said this, I'm here today to tell you that my church has been aloof. We have been exclusive. We have kept to ourselves, and we have thought ourselves better than the rest of you somehow. And no one else has said anything like that. And you could hear a pin drop. And then he said this, and I'm here today to tell you that we're sorry. Will you forgive us? And I'm looking down at the balcony. I had no idea my dad was going to say this. And I'm looking down. I'm like rapidly scanning the crowd, looking at everybody like, you know, how's this going to go down? And there was silence. It felt like 10 minutes. It was probably 10 seconds. And then yeah, after that silence, the whole place spontaneously stood up to their feet and they just roared. And they just started shouting, and they started clapping, and they were just whistling, and every one of them. And it was this response of love and care and forgiveness. And I'm up there in the balcony with this lump in my throat, trying not to cry in this moment. It was powerful. It was really powerful. And that was a lot of years before ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. This is the last week in this series, Two-Faced. We have been doing an examination into my life and your life, the life of the church, to ask the question, you have to ask the question, 
Is there any possibility that something resides in me that is filled with pride and dead religion, hypocrisy, two-facedness, judgmentalism, legalism? And today what we're going to look at is a sense of exclusivity. I'm in a club and you're not. And when we're like that in Christianity, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. We cannot afford, as we look at the stakes today, as we look at the beauty of the message of the gospel, we cannot afford to be oblivious to that and be representing that so poorly. I can't have that in my life. We can't have that in our church. Something that would say, I know more or I know a better version of truth to you, therefore I will look down my nose at you. I consider you to be lesser and that I am something above you and that you are something beneath me. Oftentimes, I think when we turn into these Pharisees, it's accidental. Are you an accidental Pharisee? Is there anything of that in you? Because most of the time, exclusive two-faced people, exclusive Pharisees are not aware of the airs that they put on because here's why. They have become utterly convinced in, down into their heart of hearts that what they're doing is as a result of the fact that they have the corner market on some version of truth that is better than everyone else. And as a result of that, they have a right to be a certain way and talk a certain way and treat people a certain way and dress a certain way and look and behave a certain way because they're sure that what they're doing is good and right and spiritual and godly. But it's not. And so in order to be included in the club, that you so often see in Christian circles, sadly. Here's what you have to do if you actually want to be that kind of two-faced Pharisee. In order to be in the club, you have to forfeit the work of Jesus Christ in your life. You have to say no to it. Because here's why. Because Jesus is committed to your transformation, to making you more like Jesus Christ. And if you want to be an exclusive two-faced Pharisee, you have to say no to the transformation of Jesus Christ in your life. And you have to begin to mimic and, and mime and carbon copy some other human being. And I'm here today to tell you that that is not the way of God. There's no future in that. The saddest thing about that picture, the saddest thing of it all, is that those who are not a part of the family, those who are outside of the church, those who kind of peer through our windows and look in and they look at us, when they see that, they reject the gospel. Because who wants to be like that? I don't want to be like that. Equally sad is that so often inside the church, that kind of person is most often seen as a spiritual giant. And that may be the saddest thing of all. Their, their life is actually marked by a deficit of love. They complain. They point out people's faults. They control and manipulate. This man thinks that he is a defender of truth. He delights to bark at anybody who would disagree with his doctrinal positions. He enjoys ripping them apart. He does not just oppose other people's positions. He caricatures other people. He will twist their statements. He will malign their motives. He wants to believe bad things about people who dare to disagree with him. He will slander their name to defend his version of truth. And he sleeps well at night because he is certain that he is an excellent guard dog for Jesus, 
barking and snarling and grinding his teeth and biting. Jesus Christ encountered this again and again and again. He bumped into it all the time. Once again, we see Jesus Christ, a man so often filled with compassion and care and true gentleness towards very broken people, very tender towards people. But he doesn't tolerate this kind of exclusive two-faced behavior. He sees it most often in the Pharisees, and he goes for it every time. He didn't tolerate it back then, and he will not tolerate it in my life or your life even today. I pray that in our church, that God is able to bring redemption and healing to anyone in our ranks that would hold on to such an absurd and broken practice and call it following Jesus. Luke chapter 5. Jesus is having a party with people he should not be spending time with. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at a tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen, church? That's why we're here today. That's why we get to come into the family of God. And look at their response. Look at these two-faced men. Jesus you're a rabbi. You can't be doing this. We're rabbis. That's not the way it works. We have to be separate in case we contract this infectious, contagious, sinful thing that's on these people, but that's not on us. That's what they actually thought. They thought an unclean person would actually make them an unclean person. Jesus, you're a rabbi. We're rabbis. We know the truth. But you're not behaving the way that we behave. We don't talk to women. We don't look at women. We don't mingle with sinners and flawed people. We don't spend time and share meals with traitor tax collectors for Rome. We don't touch sick people. We don't spend time with lost people, flawed people, because they don't know what we know. And they don't behave the way that we behave. Above all that, we have to be an example for these poor people. We're the ones following the right rules the right way. C.S. Lewis. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. Ouch. I don't really like that. Do you like that? Do you, do you see what it's saying? I think I, I think I gave this illustration, maybe it was week one or two of this series, where I'm like, I can misbehave and eat like a two-year-old till my trousers don't fit me anymore. And I'm like, okay, I better do something about it. I, so I misbehave for like two years. I start to eat healthy and move my body like I probably should more often. And I'm finally getting a bit of exercise. And I see somebody eating ice cream after me, you know, behave myself for five minutes. And I, and I judge them. 
Like, oh, look at you and your ice cream. You wouldn't catch me in an ice cream, but I've just done it for the last two years. What is that in every single one of us? We don't really like people who sing differently to the way we sin. <laughs> Ouch. And Jesus is there, and it's a party, and he's filled with a room with people who are unclean and sinful and unrepentant and unchurched and don't know their Bible and don't know denominations and don't know church culture and aren't dressed for some in their Sunday best. They're none of those things. And I think Jesus is laughing and eating and drinking and getting to know them. And I think he's loving them. I think he's caring for them. I think he's being a part of their life. And the Pharisees are filled with rage. You cannot be a member of our exclusive club and do that, Jesus. It's not in the rule book. Jesus doesn't care to join their club. In fact, he's come to dismantle their club. He doesn't like their club. Because Christianity is not exclusive. It's completely inclusive. The invitation goes out to the worst riffraff. That's why I'm here today. The invitation goes out to the weakest, to the dirtiest the invitation goes out to those who are riddled with regret and shame and guilt. And Jesus is saying, I am deliberately going after those people who are on the outside and I'm calling them by their name to come to the inside. Look at this. We already read it, verse 32. It bears reading again. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That passage should be read and reread again and again for every generation who has tried to dim the brightness of its implications. Those of us, those of you here today listening to me, and you would say, I love Jesus. There's a closeness between me and him. You ought to have this recognition of the scars of your own mistakes, your own past that comes very quickly to you. You must. The kingdom of God is not some white picket fence subdivision with flowers and manicured lawns filled with perfect people who secretly hold on to all of the, you know, the secrets of salvation. No, it is a much larger group of people who are far less self-conscious about themselves, but they know this. Like, I'm a sinner. And were it not for the grace of God in my life, I'm out with nowhere to go. I'm on the doorstep with no other options. They know the back and forth tossing. They understand the tension, this moral battle that exists inside of everybody. It's like I wake up every morning and everything inside of my nature is screaming to run away from God and to be nothing more than an entitled rebellious child that I'm well aware of that inside of me. Men and women who are truly filled with the light of God and are able to look deeply and honestly at their own shortcomings and imperfections. We should be able to do that quickly. It brings us to a place where we say, I, I, think I have to have a humble heart. I must. One of my favorite authors is a gentleman by the name of Brennan Manning. Such a, such a strange man. He just passed away two, three years ago, maybe in his 80s perhaps. And such a strange man because he's an absolute contradiction, this man. 
He's, an, he's a man of extremities, and he would do things for God that you're like, oh my goodness, like that's like Mother Teresa, you know, extreme. And then, then he would not do things for God. He would go in the wrong direction, and he would do that like times a thousand. Such a contradictory man. So much so, he volunteered. He became a Franciscan monk, a Franciscan priest. He volunteered to live in the garbage heaps of Juarez, Mexico, to help children who were scavenging a living out of the garbage to get their food. And he did that for years. <laughs> Anyone here done that? Not, not too shabby, right? Wow. Check this out. Volunteered to secretly be a pretend prisoner in Switzerland so that he could be a chaplain to the prisoners. He incarcerated himself for years to minister to prisoners in Switzerland. Anyone here ever done that? Not too shabby. Impressive stuff. But what's amazing about this man is that he was a complete contradiction, riddled with doubt about God, and he was a chronic alcoholic. He writes this as a younger man on April Fool's Day, 1975. He said, I woke up in a doorway on a commercial boulevard in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was in a thick alcoholic fog, sniffing vomit all over my sweater, staring down at my bare feet. I didn't know a wino would steal my shoes during the night to buy a bottle of Thunderbird, but one did. I'd been out in the street for a year and a half, drunk every day, sleeping on the beach until the cops chased me away. You could find me in doorways or under a bridge, always clutching my precious, precious bottle of tequila. And it wasn't that this good Franciscan monk drank too much. This is what he says. He says, I broke every one of the Ten Commandments times ten. Adultery, countless acts of fornication, violence to support my addiction, character assassination for anyone who dared to criticize me. This man is, is extreme on both sides of what you might say, you know, what an awful person, what an incredibly amazing person. He says, this morning I woke up in an alcoholic, boozy fog. I looked down the street to see a woman coming towards me, maybe 25 years old, blonde and beautiful and attractive. She had her son in hand, perhaps four. The boy broke loose from his mother's grip and ran to the doorway and stared at me. His mother rushed in behind him. She tucked his hands over his eyes and said, don't look at that filth. And then I felt her shoe. She broke two of my ribs with that kick. I'll come back to that story in a second. Church, please. We're not going to talk about this next week. We're going to different places in God's word. We're going to be looking at end times, the last days. Please don't miss this opportunity. It is the last week where we're looking at this. Uh, let me say this quite clearly. Child of God, you are ripe, ripe for spiritual arrogance and pride. You're just ripe for it, and so am I. You're ripe for judgmentalism and legalism and exclusivity. And the kind of damage that can do to the gospel. Making a God out of rules and touting the rules that you keep and hiding the rules that you don't. Enforcing them and shoving them down other people's throats. You're ripe for it. And when we go down that road, we become spiritual snobs. You look down your nose as people who are less than you. 
It is the worst representation of Christianity because it is a stench to those who are outside of the family of God. To think this impossible of yourself, for me to say, I, I would never do that, it would be your very first mistake. Do not leave this series without asking the question. I'll tell you the wrong question first. The wrong question is, I've been listening for the last few weeks. I, I'm picking up what you're throwing down, Pastor. And, you know, there's a family in our church. Yeah, it really does. They, I hope they were listening. Sincerely, there's a guy. Man, he talks like that. He just talks like that. I hate it. I... Like, that's not the right question. I know this woman, and she's always just in at people's, and it's manipulative, and it's hyper-spiritual, and it's you better do this, and you better, oh man, that's not the right question. I tell you what's not even the right question. The right question is not this. Is it our church? That's not even the right question. The right question is singularly this. God, is it me? I'm asking you to ask that question today of yourself. You have to. Lord, even if it's just to some degree, would you expose that in my life? Because my representation of the gospel, it needs to be sweet and it has to be powerful. So those who are outside the family of God would be inside the family of God. Perhaps the single greatest tool that you have to combat this movement of accidentally becoming two-faced. Because I don't think anyone says, yes, I want to be that man or that woman. More than anything else is simply to have a solid realistic assessment of your true condition, the true state of your heart without God. You've got to keep that in front of you. You've got to keep that in your pocket. Church, this is the company of broken and marred people. Amen? That's who we are. This is the company. We just sang earlier, I think we sang a song about Mary as a person who was lowly. I want, I want to be like that. I want that for your life, the humility. That you would have a true understanding of the condition of your life apart from God. To think anything better of yourself is actually foolish. That today, that you would smell the vomit on your sweater. Today, you would realize the boozy fog of your own addictions that you would gaze deeply at your own inadequacies, your shortfalls, your missteps, your rebellion, your selfishness that are still in your heart to this day. That is something inside of you that still wants to wander back to the pig's will of your mistakes in your past. It's in you. It's in me. And in that light... Right? Because that's all pretty negative. You're like, wow, thanks for beating us up, Pastor. You understand your shortcomings. But here's the key. And in the context of that, here's what you say. Broken, marred, lost, flawed, but nevertheless accepted and loved by Jesus Christ. That's me. That's me. That's you. That is perhaps your greatest tool to not accidentally become two-faced. I could do it again. I could go back to that life. I could go back to the pig's will. I could be the prodigal son, prodigal daughter. I could do it in five minutes. I could throw it all away. I could destroy my marriage. I could go down that road. I could, I could ruin relationships. I could absolutely do it. I recognize, God, the condition of my heart, but today I'm accepted and I'm loved because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for me.
I dare you, I dare you, I dare you. A life that would scream, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And everyone is loved. That you would just exude that. It would come out of every pore. When somebody meets you, that they would just get a taste. Everybody's welcome in the house of God. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect, myself included. And everyone is loved by Jesus Christ. That you would communicate that with your words, with your actions, with the way you treat people. All of that. Why would you do that? Because the same is true of you. Because you were welcomed. Because you are imperfect. And because you're loved by Jesus. And if you will do that, not only will you avoid becoming an accidental, two-faced Pharisee, but you will live a life brimming over with wonder and delight and joy and childlike innocence because you will become one of the most grateful people that you'll ever meet. And that is very attractive to a dying world who need Jesus. A Pharisee will say, well, only some are welcome. A Pharisee will say, I'm perfect. A Pharisee will say, only we are loved, and that is the death of Christianity. So church, wipe the cobwebs off. Here we stand because of the grace of God. Amen? Here we stand because of the grace of God in our lives, which gives us nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. I have a clear pulse on my propensity to turn away from God. In fact, I've got a lifetime habit of doing that. I've proven that to myself many times over. Because I know that about myself, I am all the more humbled and awed that he would love me and accept me. Therefore, we have no time for pretense. We have no time for church politics or games. I'm not interested. I'm far less interested in a suit and tie than I am a person who has a tender heart for those who are outside the family of God. Same author, Brennan Manning, he says this, I am defined, oh, look at the contradictory nature of his life, and yet he says this, I'm defined as somebody who is radically loved by Jesus Christ. How do you say that? And you look at his mistakes, and something inside of us would go, hey, you don't get to say that. Look at that stuff you've done. He says, I am radically defined as someone who is loved by Jesus Christ. God's love for you constitutes your worth. Accept that. And allow that to become the most important thing in your life. C.S. Lewis, he says, luckily we have a test. You want to know if you're behaving two-faced or not? He says, luckily we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel like we are good, above all, that we're better than somebody else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. It's a smell test. The second that you can discern in your own life, I think I'm being a little hyper-religious snooty here. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying to you. You can know in that moment, here's a litmus test for you in that moment that you can say, somebody's pushing my buttons. Somebody's pulling my strings. I am being acted upon. And it's not God. That is the work of the evil one in my life. In talking about exclusive Christianity, there is one thing that is exclusive about Christianity. And it is the claim of Jesus Christ when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And our world has a hard time coping with that. Tolerant of many things, but this world is not very tolerant of the exclusive claim of Christianity when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The world would like to say, oh, that's fine, but can we also add in 
Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad and Allah and nihilism and pluralism and materialism and every other kind of ism that you can think of. And Jesus says, no. It is an exclusive claim. And of course, to add in all of things logically, intelligently makes no sense because they actually contradict each other. Yet this claim stands in the center of all of history. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Church, what do we do with all of this? If Jesus is the way, if he truly is God, and he truly is the one who extends his love to the worst of us, <laughs> to the worst riffraff, what do we do? Do you remember the story I told you about my dad? I was so happy to be able to tell that story today. Two things my dad did. He stood up in front of everybody, and he took responsibility, and he recognized the church that I've been a part of has acted pretty superior. And he said it. And the second thing he did could not be more simple. He then said, I'm sorry. So Holy Spirit, right now, is there any of this stuff in us? Would you show us that right now? God, is there pride or dead religion? Is there legalism or exclusivity? God, would you show me that right now? Because I don't want to be that man. I don't want that in the family of God. Holy Spirit, would you even send people around me who would have the courage and the conviction to say it to me, even though I may not want to hear it? They would say it to me and show me my sin. And then I can simply say, I'm sorry. I recognize that. I'm sorry. And when you do that, all of heaven stands up and they start cheering and roaring and shouting and clapping and whistling. And yeah, now you're becoming like Jesus Christ. That is the work of God. Church, we're going to break bread right now. And the God who makes this exclusive claim makes an open invitation to anybody, to the worst of us, and says, come sit at this table and feast with me. For anyone here who calls himself a follower of Christ, for anyone who doesn't, and in this moment would say, God, I want to repent of my sins. I want to put my trust and my faith in you. Pull up a seat to the rabbi who went to parties and says, come on in. So would you examine your heart right now and particularly just say to the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you expose any two-facedness in me? I bring that to you. I ask you to forgive me as we remember his death, his body broken, and his blood that was shed on our behalf. Go ahead and take the cracker and let's partake together. Let's partake of the juice together.
I'm going to wrap up this series now with one final precious conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee. And this conversation looks really different. Nick at night. His name was Nicodemus, and he met him under the cover of darkness. And it wasn't another scolding. <laughs> We've looked at some scriptures from Jesus where he is wagging his finger. Woe is you, blind guides, hypocrites, stop doing this. This is anything but that. This man, Nicodemus, he is a spiritual Goliath. He is respected and revered, and he has titles, and he has the seat of honor, and he's wealthy, and he risks it all to meet Jesus in the darkness of night. And what Jesus said to him is so rare. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, is humble. That's the difference. Sincerely expressing a heart for God and a pursuit of truth. And I don't know, and I don't understand this, Jesus. Can you help me? And Jesus moves towards him with challenge and care and compassion and explanation. A Pharisee. We've, we've hardly seen that at all in this series, but he does this. And then it's actually the most famous conversation in the Bible because it actually brings us to the most famous verse in the Bible. Church, I want you to take this to heart. I want to conclude the series with these words. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ, especially to a Pharisee, maybe to yourself. Perhaps you've been an accidental two-faced Pharisee. And I want you to hear them in the context of dead religion and legalism and exclusivity and judgmentalism and all of that. In fact, could we stand up together and I would love for us to read this out loud, good and loud. John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're going to read that one more time, but we're going to read it really loud. And afterwards, I want us to give praise and glory to God, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's give him glory and praise. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We praise you. Thank you, God. All right, we're going to start a brand new series next week. You are going to be very interested in where we're going in the Bible. It's going to be great stuff. Connection group starts right now for anyone who wants to pop down to the chapel. God bless.